A word of encouragement comes from the Bible, and it is replete within the book of Colossians. I want this series that we are embarking upon, a series on the book of Colossians, to provide encouragement to you. And we need encouragement, for we look around and we see that there are all sorts of discouraging things. It's very easy to get discouraged when we see the news, or when we look at the economy, or when we look around. Discouragement comes around, but I want us to be encouraged. And the very specific goal that I have for us as a congregation through the book of Colossians and the series thereof is that each of us would be able to confidently affirm a number of statements. I want every single one in the congregation to be able to say, I have a personal relationship with God. Sometimes we get discouraged and doubt creeps in and we wonder whether or not we really have a personal relationship with God. Whether you're a member or somebody who attends or somebody who's only tangentially connected to the congregation here at Glendale Christian Church, by the time this series is over, I hope that you can say with confidence, I have a personal relationship with God. This book gives us great insight on how we can foster and deepen our personal relationship with God, but it won't do to say, well, Andrew or Clay or Julia or the elders, they have a, a personal relationship. I no. Each of us is called to have a personal relationship with God Almighty. I want each of us to be able to say, I am certain of my salvation. It's easy to doubt salvation because sometimes even those within the walls of a church will throw legalistic ideas towards you and they will say, well, now if you do this or that or the other, or if you don't do this or that or the other, eh, we're not really sure you're saved. I want every single one to be able to say, I am confident of my salvation. I am not just confident, but I'm certain. I know what God has done for me, and I know the faith that I have placed in him, and I know that my salvation is certain. I don't want you to have to worry about whether or not you are saved. We can grow confident in the certitude of our salvation through this book. And I also want you to understand and confidently affirm that this Christian life is worth it. It's worth it. Now, this Christian life might not give you all the money that you wished you had, and it might not automatically make your life great. You might not be healthy. No, things can happen. The Christian life does not promise health. It does not promise wealth. It does not promise that you will always have exclusively good relationships. But what it does promise you is that you will never be alone. You will never be alone. With the Holy Spirit indwelling us and gathering us together with a fellow group of believers, we can see that this life is worth it. Jesus came to give us abundant life. It's the thief who comes to kill and steal and destroy, according to John 10.10. But Jesus said he came to give us abundant and full life. This life is worth it. And so even though the world might tell us to focus on other things, focus on the accumulation of earthly wealth, or to focus on the accumulation of earthly power, no, no, we see something different. This Christian life and the change that happens in us because of him is worth it. I want all of us to be able to confidently affirm these three things. And so we go to the book of Colossians. 
Colossians is written by the mighty Apostle Paul and his protege, Timothy. They are the co-human authors of this book. Of course, it is ultimately God the Spirit who inspires these men to pen these words. But the book of Colossians is unique because Paul has never visited the congregation in Colossae. Colossians is not mentioned, Colossae is not mentioned in the book of Acts. He doesn't go and start a church here. He's not the preacher there. Paul is writing this letter with Timothy to a congregation that he has not yet visited. And yet, there is incredible encouragement that comes through the power of God, even dealing with folks that we do not have a personal relationship with yet. Now, as Paul and Barnabas write this letter, they're writing it to the congregation that resides in the town of Colossae. Colossae no longer exists. It was wiped off the map in the mid-60s A.D., the first century A.D., by a terrible earthquake. But we know a lot of the towns very close to it. Very close to it are Heropolis, very close to it are Laodicea which is a town mentioned in the book of Revelation and elsewhere in the Bible. And so we know that this congregation existed in what is known today as Turkey. It's close to the Mediterranean Sea. In the ancient world, it was uh, in an area known as Asia Minor. And this is a congregation that has grown. And this is written to the faithful believers thereof. This letter is not a warning about your bad behavior and what you ought not to do and start to do. This is a letter of encouragement to those who already believe and who are already saved and who are ready to grow stronger in their belief. Today, we're going to look at the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I'm going to put the words on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, but you follow along in your favorite translation. If you are able, would you stand in reverence of God's word as as I proclaim it out loud? Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying, just as it has been doing in you since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light." who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As Paul so regularly does, he starts his letters to different congregations with prayer. And he launches into a prayer here and a description of his prayer life that should be very encouraging indeed. What I would like to do is march through this text verse by verse. I'd love to go through it line by line and see what insights of encouragement we can glean from God's holy word. Recall that verse 3 tells us, Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying also for you. Paul is giving thanks to God. He's praying always for you. He's praying for this congregation. He remembers them very regularly. And when he prays, he prays to God the Father. Invoking the title God the Father, very specifically of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is demonstrating an expansion of his theological understanding. For in the Old Testament, God was referred to as Father very often. And we can think of God as father of humanity in the sense that he is the author of humanity and he created us in his image. But Paul here expands the understanding of God as father by specifically invoking God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The paternal aspect of God the Father is never fully understood until we recognize the culmination of that love poured out on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. God the Father takes on a more meaningful and a more personal sense rather than a generic esoteric sense when we recognize that He is very seriously the eternal Father of God the Son. And when the triune nature of Yahweh Almighty is revealed, His paternal nature is magnified and glorified in a more glorious way than any in the Old Testament had ever surmised. And Paul was an expert in Old Testament theology. In fact, before he was known as the mighty Apostle Paul, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And he was thoroughly Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, in fact. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Pharisee. He was zealous for the law and faultless in keeping it. He was on the fast track to become a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish Supreme Court, the ones who wanted Jesus killed, the ones responsible for the charge of blasphemy against Jesus and ultimately handing him over to the Roman authorities to have him executed. He was about to become a member of this Supreme Court. Oh, he was thorough in his knowledge of God's Word. And when he heard about Jesus, he considered Jesus to be an imposter, An upstart claiming to be the Messiah? How dare this Jesus claim to be the Messiah? And so filled with rage and hate fire was Saul of Tarsus that he actually held the cloaks, thereby gaining legal responsibility for the death of the very first Christian martyr of all time, Stephen. Saul held the cloaks while the men picked up rocks and threw them at Stephen until he died. That was on Saul. He received letters from the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high priest, to go and persecute and arrest 
and if necessary, kill Christian men, women, and children. In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to exercise and execute one of these orders to arrest Christians on sight when he got knocked off his high horse. The Lord Jesus himself knocked him down with a burst of light more glorious than any that had ever yet been seen. And Saul of Tarsus was struck blind. On the ground, in the dirt, groping around, he heard a voice cry out. The voice of Jesus. Questioning. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul had no idea who this was. Blinded, unable to see, unable to know what was happening. He cried out, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But now, you will get up, and you will go into the city I will show you, and you will be my chosen instrument, and you will be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Jesus Christ encountered Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and showed that he was no imposter. Showed that he was in fact part of the very nature of God. God the Son, Yahweh in the flesh. And Saul's understanding, we know him now as Paul, Paul's understanding of Yahweh Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God to whom he prays and here whom he calls the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is no mere single person. He is a tri-personal being. And Paul understands that Yahweh, is the all-knowing, all-powerful, morally perfect, eternal, necessary, triune master of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is Lord. Yahweh in the flesh. Calling Jesus Lord is very, very important because the Greek word for Lord is kurios. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, every time God's name was used 6,282 times in the Old Testament... The Tetragrammaton, the holy name for God, YHWH, when the Hebrew language is translated into Greek, the word, the name Yahweh, was translated Lord, Kurios. And so the Greek version of the Old Testament, we know it as the Septuagint, every time it mentions the divine name Yahweh, it gets translated into Greek as Kurios, Lord. So when Paul calls Jesus, The Lord Jesus Christ, he is in no uncertain terms invoking the full deity of Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just from Nazareth. He's from heaven. He's the second person of the Trinity. And we understand the fatherhood of God in light of the perfect sacrifice of his own son. That's who he's praying to. And in verse 4 and 5, we hear that since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you've previously heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. Here, Paul once again uses the tripartite combination of three really great Christian words, faith, love, and hope. 
This is not the only time these three concepts are linked together in the New Testament. Paul himself will put these together in the book of 1 Corinthians very regularly. And this concept is very, very important. It starts with faith. Faith is the Greek word pistis. Pistuo is the verb form. And it comes from the idea of intellectually knowing something to be case emotionally trusting something to be the case, and volitionally walking in the truth of what you know in your heart. When we place our faith in Christ, everything changes. The way we place our faith in Christ is by believing in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for our sins. And when we believe that in our heart, not merely intellectual assent, we have to know it, of course, but it's not just intellectual knowledge, it's knowing it in your heart. It's a heartfelt trust and belief. When that happens, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Before we do a single act, before we do a single good work that He prepared for us to do, before we take one step demonstrating our faith, our faith has been placed And faith results in taking many steps. We step forward in obedience. We step forward in love. And we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And love is the charge. We love. Love is the greatest commandment. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love Yahweh with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is very, very important. And love is the expression that is built upon the foundation of faith. But faith itself is not in anything. Faith itself is very specifically in the person Jesus because of the gospel, the word of truth. And there is a hope laid in the gospel for us. We don't merely place our faith in anything and that springs forth love. No, we place our faith very certainly in the hope found in the gospel. For just as Jesus was raised from the dead with a resurrection body, so too we who are believers will be raised with resurrection bodies. This is very, very important because it is the culmination of our salvation. First, by faith, we're saved from the penalty of our sin when we believe in our hearts. Then we have a lifelong process of being saved from the power of our sin as we collaborate with the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And finally, we will receive glorification when Christ Jesus returns and we receive our resurrection bodies. Until then, we are stuck in our sinful nature. And even though we are redeemed and forgiven from our sins, we continue to grow old. We continue to get fat and gray and eventually we die. Until the Lord comes back or calls us home, that is the plight that we have. We are stuck in these bodies, but these are not the bodies that God intended for us to have. Yahweh made us in his image such that we would be a composite of body and soul. The soul has been redeemed, but the body has yet to be redeemed. It will be upon his return. And that which is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. That which is merely physical will be physical and spiritual. And we will have a tangible resurrection body. And this provides great hope. This past year, some of you may have lost someone you loved, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, and there's grief that goes along with that. But we do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We have hope, for part of the hope of resurrection is the hope of reunion. And all those who have gone before us in Christ, we will get to be reunited with them upon the return of Jesus and the gift of the resurrection body. So yes, there is a hope about which we read in the gospel. 
And we place our faith in the man Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. And out of that comes a wellspring of love in our life. These go together. Which has come to you, according to verse 6, just as in all the world it is constantly bearing fruit and multiplying. The gospel has come to you. The word of truth. And it constantly bears fruit and multiplies. It grows and expands. And here we have a reference back to Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds where Jesus said, a man went out to sow some seed and he scattered it and some fell along the path and the birds of the air snatched it and some fell along the shallow soil and it grew up quickly but was scorched out because it had no root and some fell along the thorns and it grew up but so did the thorns and they all had to be chucked. But some fell on the good soil and it produced a deep root and a crop 30, 60, and 100 times over. The gospel will expand. The gospel will multiply. And we are supposed to be the fertile soil into which the gospel is planted. That is our calling. To make disciples and to expand. Just as it has been doing in you. We don't just expand the kingdom geographically and numerically. We expand the kingdom and multiply it through depth within since the day you heard and understood the grace in truth. The grace of God in truth. The Christian is saved because of grace. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace, Jesus did what he did. And by faith, we unwrap the present of that salvation. When you understand the grace of God, which is the gift given to all mankind, even though all mankind has not received that gift, it is because all mankind does not place faith in Jesus. Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Lest any man boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works He prepared in advance for us to do. The grace of God is what propels us into the Christian life. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave who is a faithful servant of Christ Jesus on our behalf, who also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras is the man who left the town of Colossae, traveled through the Lycan Valley, went through Heropolis, went past Laodicea, and found his way to Ephesus, where in Acts chapter 19, a mighty apostle to the Gentiles named Paul and his protege Timothy were teaching at the lecture hall of Tyrannus for a year and a half. And the Bible says in Acts 19.10 that all who lived in the region of Asia, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, right where Colossae is, heard the word of truth. Epaphras, he went from Colossae to Ephesus. He heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul and from Timothy and he brought it back to his fellow countrymen. He brought it back to his city and shared it with them. And we learn from Colossians chapter 4 verse 6 that Epaphras is in fact from Colossae and we know that he is the one who has shared the gospel with them and he is a faithful slave. He is a devoted fellow servant. He is a doulos and a diakonos. He is the one who will take the truth of God and bring it to the people and he's the one who informed Paul and Timothy about their love in the spirit. Interestingly enough, this is the only reference to the Holy Spirit in the gospel or in the book of Colossians. Every other time the spirit is mentioned, it's mentioned in a little bit more general sense, like the spiritual nature. The Holy Spirit gets his reference right here, right here in verse 8. 
and the Holy Spirit produces love. Well, verse 9 tells us, For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and, have, uh, and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding are words of the mind. And the mind is very, very important for the Christian and for the Christian life, for it is what we believe that will dictate how we behave. And if we do not believe the right things, we cannot be expected to behave the right way, which is why we do not expect the world to act like Christians. They do not believe as we believe. And yet, what we do as Christians is grow and seek to be filled with the full knowledge of His will. The full knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. These words, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, go together to form the intellectual life of the mind for the Christian. We must grow in our knowledge. Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts with your mind, but it can't ever stop at your mind. It has to matriculate to your heart. It has to be expressed through our loving obedience. But it has to start with our mind. We have to know what he's done. So how do we grow in the full knowledge of his will? The full knowledge of his will is not merely, should I marry this girl or that girl? Should I go here or there for lunch? Should I go to this school or that school? No, no. The full knowledge of his will is, first of all, much more general in the sense that he wants a relationship with you whereby you will be saved and you will live a worthy Christian life. Yes. But if you want to know God's very specific will, he's laid it out in the Bible. All you have to do is read. If you want to know what God's will is, read his word. You know God better by knowing his word. If you want to know God's will, you pray. You pray with a group. You ask godly counsel, and then you knock on doors. And if you've knocked on five doors and only one opens, that is his will. But we get so worried about what does God want me to do that sometimes we miss the very general sense God wants me to grow in relationship with him. The full knowledge of God's will is that we do this Christian life. We need to be filled with it, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, verse 10 says, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. We have to put our belief into practice. If we know the full knowledge of God's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, then it's time to do something with it. And one of the great descriptions of the, uh, descriptions of the Christian life, rather, is a walk. We're walking with the Lord. Discipleship is a walk. We keep in step with the Spirit, says Paul in Galatians 5.25. Walk is very important. And so we need to live a walk worthy of the Lord. Now, if you're curious as to whether or not you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, remember, first of all, that your walk comes entirely because of your faith. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You recognize that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and you want to keep in step with Him. And the walk is the way we live. It's our obedience. It's getting baptized. It's confessing and repenting and going to church and making disciples and doing all of the things that he has for us to do. And the way to tell if you are walking in a manner worthy of him is to look at the three describing phrases here in Colossians 1.10. First, to please him in all respects. Does the life you lead please him? Are you pleasing him in all respects? Or are you contradicting him? 
Are you going against his explicit will? Are you doing that which he does not want you to do? Pleasing him means doing what he wants. Calling him Lord means he is God. He is the boss. He gets to call the shots. And so if he wants to bring me to Springfield, to Springfield I shall go. If he wants me to go to ministry, then I will be in ministry. If he wants me to do this, I will do this. I want to please him in every respect. But second, bearing fruit in every good work. I'm supposed to bear fruit. I'm supposed to be the soil that produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times over. And every step I take should bear fruit. I should walk and my life should be lived in such a way that good fruit comes in every work. And so, I have been created to do good works. It is not the good works that I do that save me. No, 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 not at all. It is because I am saved that I am equipped to do the good works to which he called me. The world sometimes gets this backwards. The world or sometimes the cults that are close to Christianity but are not Christianity will get it wrong. And these worldly views, these cultic views will say, you have to be good in order for God to save you. And it focuses on the actions that precede relationship with God. And this is entirely backwards. This is antithetical to the gospel in every regard. The good works that we do are never to be saved. They are always because we have been saved. Always and exclusively. On your own power, you cannot do good works. It does not bear fruit in this world to seek to do good unless you have the gospel. But with the Holy Spirit inside of you, when the gospel expands... The world improves. We bear fruit in every good work. Do you know that everywhere Christianity goes, the world improves? Everywhere the gospel goes, do you know what follows? Schools, hospitals, elevation of women. All sorts of good things happen because of the gospel. It changes the world for the better. Collectively, the church is responsible for more good on earth than any other force because it is the church and only the church that is filled with the Spirit of God. And that's why the good works bear fruit. And that's why every good work can bear fruit. So if we live to please Him in every respect and we bear fruit in every good work, then we also multiply in the full knowledge of God. And here we have a very interesting concept. Some people might look at this and say, Andrew, I thought you were a master of logic. Doesn't this seem like circular reasoning? No. Remember, we are to be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that we can multiply in the full knowledge of God. Well, which is it? Do you have the full knowledge of God or does walking give you the full knowledge of God? It's not circular at all. It goes like this. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and the full knowledge of his will, knowing that he wants a relationship with us, he wants us to be saved, and he wants us to live a life worthy of him, then we start putting it into practice in love. And we start loving the world around us, loving our neighbors before us, loving those with us, loving and leading our families. What happens is that our roots in the faith grow deeper and deeper and deeper. The world will see the love, and as the seed is planted and as it germinates, the roots start to grow. But we don't see the roots of plants. 
we see the fruit of the plants. We see the fruit of the trees. And that's what the world sees. The world sees us by our actions, but God sees the depth of our roots. And as we live a life worthy of him, as we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, and we please him in every respect, and we bear fruit in every good work, then we multiply in the knowledge of God, and that means our roots grow deeper. The man who has been doing Christianity for 50 years can have a deeper root system than the man who's been doing Christianity for five years. And that's because the more you live, the more you love, the more you grow in Christ, the deeper your roots become. And the man who does not grow deep roots in the knowledge of God is a man who will flake out. It is a man who's been planted in shallow soil. Yes, he may receive the gospel with great joy, but when the uh, struggles and trials of this world come, he will be scorched and he will fall away, just as Jesus says in his parable. May it never be that we at Glendale Christian Church get consumed with producing good fruit and yet are not multiplying the knowledge of God in depth. We will grow in depth. We will grow in depth. We will grow in depth. That will be our focus so that we can grow in number. We will not focus on growing in number until we are growing in depth. The knowledge of God is made more multiplied by the service of God. Being strengthened with all power Verse 11 says, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness and patience are very similar concepts. Steadfastness, or your translation, might have endurance. Steadfastness or endurance is similar to patience. Here's the difference. Patience involves a person. Steadfastness or endurance involves a circumstance. You can be steadfast even if you lose your job. You can be steadfast even if the economy tanks. You can be steadfast even if the circumstances in which you find yourself start to deteriorate. You can be patient with your fellow coworker even when the job is going badly. You can be patient with your family even when the circumstance is not going well. You can be patient towards your neighbor even when he's doing weirdo stuff in the front yard and growing a little bunker and doing all kinds of stuff. You can be patient with him even that way. Patience goes to a person. Endurance or steadfastness goes to a circumstance. And we can do it. It's by the power of the gospel that we can do it. How can you steadfastly endure bad things in life? Because of Christ. How can you deal with that difficult person with patience? It's because of Christ. So that joyously, verse 12 tells us, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Inheritance is a really big, important word in the Old Testament. The inheritance was given to the people of God as they left the slavery and bondage of Egypt. And as they wandered through the wilderness, finally, the people of God were given their inheritance, the promised land. We get to share in the inheritance. But we recognize that the inheritance is not just a geographical location. It is a spiritual location. And it is not available just to those who are born Jews. It is open to all of those who come by faith, even the Gentiles, even me. Paul's an apostle to guys like me. And I get to share in the inheritance of guys like, well, Judah and Daniel and Every other great Hebrew name you can think of. 
I get to be part of that inheritance. And what that means is that I'm part of the saints in light. Now, here's how the inheritance plays out. When you receive the inheritance of God Almighty by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh, this is what happens. He rescues us, verse 13, from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You move from the kingdom of darkness and the authority thereof to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of the Son of His love. This is a great transfer. In the ancient world, when a new king or a new emperor or a new conqueror would take over a land, one of the things that he would make sure to do was to take people from the land he had conquered, uproot them, and bring them back to his place or a different place and plant them anew. It's the exile. It's what happened to Daniel and his friends during the time of Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. It's what happened during Jeremiah. It's what happens when a new king comes in. And Jesus, King Jesus, has transferred us from the authority of darkness and the kingdom thereof into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the son of his love. We have new citizenship. This is our inheritance. We have been moved into the promised land spiritually. And now we wait for the culmination, the rest. The Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, is described as a guarantee of the inheritance to come. We who walk with the Spirit, who keep in step with Him, who are filled with Him, and therefore are never alone, are in a new kingdom. The kingdom of the Son of His love. And it is bright and glorious. And because of His Son, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. It is a glorious thing to be redeemed. To be redeemed, to be forgiven from sins is so, so vital and important. And we have to understand that we are forgiven. We are saved. We are redeemed. Because He has a personal relationship with us. And since He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, we get to live a Christian life that is worth it. It is worth it. You are saved. You do have a personal relationship with him. This is not a letter of warning. This is a letter of encouragement. You who are here today, place your faith in him because the hope of the gospel is for you. Allow that faith to grow into loving expression of who he is to change the world around you. But sometimes we doubt. I don't know, Andrew. You say a lot of things, and that's nice, but, but how do I know? Well, here's one of the ways I think you can grow. Remember how the uh, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord pleases him in all ways and bears fruit in every good work and multiplies the knowledge of God? At Glendale Christian Church, we have some ways that you can multiply the knowledge of God and you can walk alongside fellow believers. And here are some of the things that we offer regularly. Every single week on Tuesday, I send out a prayer prompt email. If you are not receiving that and want to, my email is andrew at glendalechristian.org. Email me and I'll put you on the list. And I send out a Devo and a prayer prompt every single week. Without fail, it comes. Tuesdays, expect it. That's one way. Another is Sunday school. Before you come to second service, come a little bit early and go to Sunday school. We've got five adult Sunday schools. We've got youth Sunday school. We've got children's Sunday school. Be involved. 
We have Wednesday night programs. We're going to, with the men's group, talk about Colossians on Wednesday night. The ladies' group going to talk about Colossians on Wednesday night. The youth group going to talk about Colossians on Wednesday night. The little kids going to talk about Colossians on Wednesday night. There's something for everyone. Well, I don't know, man. I'm kind of busy on Wednesday. Fine. How about if you're a lady, you go to the Wednesday morning or Thursday morning lady study. Or if you want to join a small group or be on one of the serves teams and go ahead and serve in the booth or serve on the stage or serve at the doors or serve at the coffee bar or serve with the little kids. Oh, but I don't like to teach. But can you just stand there? Can you do that? I think you can serve with the little kids. It can work. Or maybe you're a gearhead and you want to join the Jehus. Now, the Jehus is a group of men and women who love motors and they want to drive this life like a madman, like King Jehu from 2 Kings. That's right. And you know what you can do? Every month you can get together with a group of people who love God and love cars and you can have a Devo and have fellowship and you can do stuff like that. Yeah, you know what? There's stuff going on, but there's some stuff that's unique and timely also. Women's retreat is January 20th and 21st. Next week is the last week you have to sign up. So between now and then, go to the hub. It's that little half-circle desk right out in the foyer. And fill out the paperwork or get out your phone and hit the QR code or go to the website or the app and sign up for the ladies' retreat, women. It's going to be fun. Men, men's encounter is coming February 10, 11, and 12. And I'd love to see you guys go with Clay, go with me, to Camp Siloam in Arkansas and go have a relationship with God, encounter Christ in a cool and powerful and unique way. I'd love for you to go. And you know what? You can go right over to the hub and you can get the information and sign up. Or you could join the prayer team. Oh, Andrew, I get a prayer. But no, that's not the prayer team. The prayer team is my elite prayer warriors who will say, yeah, once a month I'll gather in person with you, Andrew, and we'll pray out loud. But in addition to the prayer prompt, you'll also have additional prayer requests that are sent to you. And I will expect you to journal some prayers so that we can document Yahweh's faithfulness unto us. And part of the prayer team will be encouragement. You'll call, text, or write notes to people letting them know that you're praying for them. And we will grow the encouragement of this body, and I can't do it alone. I've only got eight, not even eight. I think there were six people signed up uh, before I came into second service. You can go out to the hub. It's a little circular desk in the, in the foyer, and you can get information about all these things. And another one is conversational discipleship. Maybe you want to get to know some other people at the church. Maybe you're like, the only people I ever hang out with are people my own age. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get three or four guys together, and I'm going to try to put some older guys with some younger guys, some intergenerational relationship discipleship happening. I'm going to try to put some younger ladies with some older ladies, and I'm going to give you weekly conversational prayer and discussion prompts, and you're going to go to coffee or go to somebody's house or hang out for an hour a week with two or three other people you may or may not know yet, and you'll get to share your life with them, your story with them, how God is encouraging you through the book of Colossians, and you can pray with and for them. Don't say that we don't have opportunities for you to grow in the full knowledge of God and to walk alongside other fellow believers. We do. And while you're thinking about that, here's what I want you to do this very specific week. Would you please read the book of Colossians once all the way through, and would you please read chapter 1 four different times? Read chapter 1 four times this week, and the whole book once. You'll be blessed by it. And then I want you to memorize Colossians 1, 9, and 10. It's a great little section of verses. It says, um, in for this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you or to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying the knowledge of God. 
contemplate how the right knowledge leads to the right behavior, and finally, get involved. It'll help achieve the goal of having a personal relationship, knowing you're saved, and knowing that this Christian life is worth it. Will you stand with me as we pray? Dear Yahweh, we love you. Please, don't just take our word for it. See it in how we walk. See it in how we read your word and memorize your word and get involved with the congregation. See it in how we live, for we know that your grace has explained your hope and we have placed our faith in you and now we should live a life of love. God, we do love you. But Yahweh, don't just take our word for it. See it in our actions as we walk in a manner worthy of you. This we pray in your perfect name. Amen.